Hello and welcome to The Invisible Hand. My name is Dominic Sherub and I'm joined by my co-host Paul Scanlon to look under the hood of the Australian economy with a view to understanding what's happening and why. Welcome back, Paul, after Jamie filled in for you last week. Yeah, and i got to say a big shout out and thanks to Jamie for jumping in at the last minute. I had some relatively emergency news which pulled me away at the time before our last recording. Yes, congratulations on the twins. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's been a, a very fun time at home. That's uh, kids <laughs> number four and five. So I can't wow. say that we're following the advice of a former Australian treasurer, Peter Costello, once said you should have one for mum, one for dad and one for the country. We've gone a bit further than that. And so I think we're channeling the old Billy Hughes, the former Australian Prime Minister back in the 30s. He was suggesting we should populate or perish. So we're doing a bit more of that. Well, good job. Uh, moving along, uh, we have our usual three segments. Uh, this week, What's in the News? We'll be talking about the RBA's decision to hold rates. In our second segment, The Hand, we'll be discussing what's happening in the Australian economy. And in our final segment, What's Invisible? We'll focus on the Chinese property market. In our first segment, what's in the news, uh, the Australian cash rate. So it was kept at 4.1% uh, in the RBA's last meeting. This is good news for people with mortgages. But in her first statement on monetary policy as governor, Michelle Bullock did warn that Australia is not yet out of the woods and indicated that interest rate rises remain a possibility. Paul, thoughts? Well, Michelle's certainly provided good news to Australian mortgage holders, but she's really ruining my predictive abilities. <laughs> yes. In episode one, I was forecasting two increases this year, and so far we've had none since then, so I'm failing as an economic predictor at this <laughs> particular juncture. Still there's time. There is, sadly, for mortgage holders, and by the sounds of it, and certainly from the Governor's last speech, it's uh, indicating that rate rises are still remain a strong possibility. Uh, the RBA expressed their concerns around the stickiness of inflation, particularly services inflation. We've yeah. seen the inflation story be a twin story. Goods inflation increased rapidly after the end of COVID with supply shockwaves throughout the world, but that did uh, dissipate relatively quickly. And mm -hmm. what we've seen following it is services inflation being high and remaining high uh, and certainly higher than the RBA would like. It was sticky in a few segments in the last print, it was particularly high in factors like insurance, rent, medical and oil, all which had individual stories to tell. So, Paul, how do we understand what those differences might mean for interest rates? Yeah, well, the challenge in the RBA only having one instrument being a cash rate to yeah. tackle inflation is that they sort of need to respond with a singular change in response to many other things which are changing, both That's in hard. different time dimensions and different um, sizes. Mm -hmm. So uh, we know there's a lag. You know, interest rate policy um, is implemented by the RBA so that they either increase or decrease interest rates to stimulate or constrain the economy. But they do it and then people react. Yeah. And not only do they react um, in a time-delayed manner, but all sorts of parts of the economy operate in different time speeds and have different things occurring for them. So what we know, for example, is that uh, the rent story is being driven in response to uh, property prices and the change in property prices around the country has been different. So that's pushed rental prices up. Yeah. And there is little that the RBA has been able to do about that. And quite mm -hmm. frankly, there is little that uh, interest rates can do about that at this point. It tends to be more of a supply issue. Mm -hmm. The insurance and the medical sectors are having completely different issues. So there's a, a very big underwriting change happening globally around the costs of in insurance, and that's driving up 
insurance policies. That's got nothing to do with Australian interest rates. Um, similarly, there's uh, a, a change in the way that medical um, uh, prices are being set around the world, both in relation to some IP issues in China, as well as an unwinding of a massive push by the, by the worldwide medical industry to respond to COVID. Right. As that's now fallen away, medical the medical industry has to respond in different ways in different sectors. And that's got nothing to do with what the RBA is trying to do either. Right. And, of course, then there's oil. So we've seen a crisis between uh, Ukraine and Russia, which is um, very sharply risen oil prices um, in response to that um, crisis. And, and part of that was driven by political measures. So there was attempts to um, neutralise Russia's source of capital to fund the war. Yeah. And so uh, international sanctions against Russia um, has meant that that's pushed their oil supply to different parts of the world and affected different pricing for their oil in particular out of different parts of the world. So the Middle East has responded differently in terms of increasing and de decreasing supply. But then, of course, we see a new shock coming out of the Middle East with a new yeah. crisis, and that's now shifting geopolitical tensions around oil as well. All of this has nothing to do with the medical sector or the rental um, prices in Australia or the insurance sector, but our RBA has to respond with a single price wow. adjustment being in interest rates, and that's the difficult challenge they face. So in response to all of those different factors, where do you see the RBA taking interest rates? What is the next prediction? Well, my last prediction wasn't so good, so <laughs> uh, note that when you're chalking up my next one. But uh, the consistent theme is higher for longer. That's what we've always said here is that we think higher for longer. Mm -hmm. And we think that because it's really easy for people to think about uh, interest rate responses being linear. So you can push interest rates up in a straight line and you can pull them down in a straight line. And we all like to think that the economy will respond directly to those things and push interest rate or inflation up or down directly in response. But right. as we've just talked about, there's a lot of factors at play and they're all operating on their own timelines. So uh, what we're saying from that is that it's likely to be a more confusing and longer story to reduce and wring inflation out of the Australian economy in particular. And uh, that's likely to take uh, both further increases. Um, I've said two. I'm happy to, whether it's one or two, there's certainly more that are coming. And I don't think we're going to see the other side of this tightening cycle until late into 2024. Mm. And that's really dependent on whether or not this continued run of crisis news um, goes on. And there are still powder kegs all around the world. Think about Taiwan. Think about the the range of ways in which the Israel-Gaza conflict could emerge. Um, these are all um, really unpredictable factors, uh, which on the weight of probabilities mean that we're likely to see more crisis and more challenges for the RBA to deal with, which are all going to create shocks and shocks are inflation uh, increasing factors. And so that's why we, we stick with this higher for longer probability. I know it's not good news for Australian households, um, but maybe we get our prediction right eventually. So it seems there is conflicting data for the RBA to make sense of, and it feels confusing or it could feel confusing for general people out there. What we hear is that there's low unemployment and yet there's high house prices, which mean high rents, and there's a cost of living crisis, which is real. So while we seem to think the Australian economy is travelling well, it, it doesn't always sound like individuals are feeling it the same way. So this is the perfect pivot, actually, to the next segment, The Hand, which is the segment where we talk about uh, the driving forces behind the economy. 
Paul, how do you make sense of all of this? Well, thanks, Dom. That's a big question. It um, is a big question. <laughs> I think sometimes with big questions, it helps to unpack them a little bit into bite-sized chunks. And yeah. I heard you say there at the start uh, there was a reference to the labour market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's true. We have uh, record low unemployment levels in Australia, 3.7%. That's mm-hmm. a record low as far back as records go in this country. Um, what we see in that is that the participation rate is at record levels. So what that means is that we're pulling people out of the non-labour market into the labour market. So, uh, for example, those that were at home have now been pulled into jobs, either full-time or part-time in the Australian economy. That's one way in which we're solving the shortage of Australian labour. The other way that we're solving it is that there are record hours worked. So if you have a job uh, or have been pulled out of the non-labour market into the labour market, you are now working longer than ever. So if you feel like you're working hard, you are, because that's what the data is showing us. We've got more people working than ever, longer hours than right. ever. And that's the way we've, we've tried to address this record low unemployment at the moment. Mm-hmm. The other way we try to um, understand or recognise changes in the labour market is around population. Yeah. So we've got a population growth rate currently at 2.2%. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife and I are clearly doing our bit to try and increase <laughs> that right. with a couple of twins <laughs> in the mix, but it's not really Australian birth rates that are giving rise to that population growth rate. It's immigration and there's a catch-up. We've talked about this before. It's the, the post-COVID catch-up in immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, almost 500,000 people expected uh, into Australia in this uh, calendar year, and that's well up on Australia's long-term average of 300,000. Mm-hmm. So we're catching up there. Um, but it's interesting to dive into what those numbers look like. Uh, at least 100,000 of that, so about a fifth, are students. Mm. So students are returning to this country, and that has a couple of impacts. Um that's a big chunk of the number coming in, but they're not working. Right, yeah. They're buying services, educational services, and filling up property. So if you think it's there's a rental crisis out there, it's certainly being uh, exacerbated by students coming back into the country, and the education sector of, is, of course, loving that, uh, but that's making it tougher on um, people renting and seeking rental accommodation. And where are these people going? Well, out of that 500,000, about 150,000 are each going to New South Wales and Victoria, um, so the bulk of immigration in the country is going into the two states where it's traditionally gone. So that's, again, putting pressure on infrastructure and housing and markets in those particular economies, mm-hmm. uh, the state economies, but providing labour. Yeah. So other states are not benefiting equally from the influx of immigration. Um, but there are some other um, flow-on effects. So, for example, Queensland is benefiting from uh, record interstate migration. Yeah. So you've got new people into New South Wales, Victoria, and then record flows of people into Queensland. So about 50,000 people are moving from those two states into Queensland on top of about 50,000 uh, people uh, immigrating directly into Queensland. So it's a bit, of, a bit of a moving feast, but what we're seeing is that um, it's true that if you feel like you're working hard, you are because you're being asked to, and the gap uh, that's in the labour market that's trying to be addressed is trying to be addressed by immigration. Yeah. But it's largely being that immigration fix is largely occurring in two states, not the other states. And the sort of canary in the coal mine of all this is job ads. They're a really good leading indicator as to what's happening in labour markets. And job ads are actually decreasing. Mm-hmm. So that is a really good sign to watch out for because it shows us what employers are thinking about for the future. Uh, previously, job ads were um, strong and increasing, meaning that employers wanted people to work. But now we've sort of got the other side of the coin here happening where job ads are starting to go down whilst we have an influx 
of migration uh, into the country. So kind of watch this space. It's there's stuff moving around, but the labour market's in a in a bit of a mix at the moment. I also made reference to housing shortages. How is that playing in the mix here? Yeah, this one's uh, a bit of a problem. Yeah. And what we're seeing is record population growth driven by international immigration, um, but clearly a lack of supply. And that's going to support housing prices for quite some time. Um, the average rate of completions we've had over the last 10 years is 175,000 new dwellings per annum built and delivered in Australia. So mm-hmm. it's a 10-year average, 175,000 homes, whether it be houses or apartments, delivered in Australia on average over the last 10 years. Per year. Per year. Yeah. Um, the predictions for the next two years are actually only 150,000, mm. and that's in response to um, both some challenges in the Australian supply of um, product and labour into the housing market as well as building cl- um, builder collapses. There's been a bit of, bit of a difficult time in the last 12 months for builders and developers to be starting new stock. Yeah. And so we're not even near our peak or, or, or not even near our average uh, for the next two years. We know that from the number of starts that are occurring now. But what we know is that we would need more than 250,000 new dwellings per annum for the next five years to get anywhere near the government target of 1.2 million new homes by 2029. That's the stimulus package that the government has released, the federal government has released in response to pushing by the Greens. Uh, There's just no way that's going to happen. And so uh, what we know is as this immigration um, is building up and catching up from our um, shortages over COVID, uh, we currently... um, you know, the headlines read that we have a shortage of housing. Now, as you know, I've um, said before that I don't buy into that shortage before. Uh, I think that we have built nearly enough homes for the population that we've had and the lack of immigration during COVID was certainly a settler for that market. There was not really people who could not find homes. There was a price adjustment, there was, but there was not a stock supply adjustment during that period. Mm-hmm. But we're genuinely facing a shortage of new starts when you simply see the number of people coming in versus the number of new starts that we have. So it is real now. We are certainly going to have a shortage of um, new supply of property into the Australian market for at least the next five years, and that will push prices higher. Because what we know is that the building industry cannot simply double or triple its productive capacity Mm. over the next 12 or 24 months. Doesn't really seem likely. So that does make sense why the RBA is finding it hard to know what to do with certainty, with so many different factors external, like we talked about before, and lots of internal factors at play. Yeah, I mean, we talked about the international factors before, but if you combine these domestic factors of having a labour market, which is really tough to predict where it's going to head with some short-term shortages of supply being filled up with a catch-up in immigration but a lowering of the leading indicator, which is job ads, uh, whilst at the same time you've got an undersupply of houses for these people to move into and live in. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's unsurprising that the RBA um, is finding it challenging to know what to do. And, of course, if you don't know what to do, hold, putting things on hold is an easy way to, to work it out. But what I would add uh, in relation to your original question, mm-hmm. that there is a lot of data out there and it is feeling confusing for people because I agree with you. On the one hand, there are really positive signs for the Australian economy. It's growing. You know, we've got a highly functional labour market. We still have relatively low interest rates and we've got good economic growth 
as a whole, the whole pie is growing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also said it, it's on the ground, you know, for individuals not feeling the same. The story feels different. There is a cost of living crisis. And it's true um, that individual effects are different and they can be different than the overall effect. Although we've got a bigger economy, we've got more people sharing in it. And what that actually means is there is a per capita reduction in people's wealth. So what does that mean? It's the example where the pie has got slightly bigger, mm-hmm. but the number of people participating in the pie it has increased even more so that everyone's getting a slightly smaller share. And that's why you would start to feel confused because you're reading headlines indicating that things are going well, but you have less. Right, right. In the midst of that quite challenging outlook, do you have any sense of what people should do or could do to, to make that matters better for themselves? Yes, well, of course, other than continuing to listen to the Invisible Hand podcast for your economic guidance, other things that are really relevant for people to think about uh, is that uh, Australians were good during COVID and during a crisis increasing their rate of savings. That was a really positive uh, sense that people did to um, get control of their own affairs in a time of crisis and uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen the savings rate decrease uh, post-COVID mm-hmm. and that's something I definitely encourage um, anyone to c- reconsider. The, the amount of uncertainty that we are facing is high and I think underappreciated. And so you know, if you're going to face uh, a greater level of uncertainty, looking at you know, your job circumstances while well, you can. I mean, there's a tight labour market right now. People should take advantage of that where they can and, and uh, either renegotiate or find the best possible outcomes for them in the, in the labour market, but certainly concentrate on building safety buffers for themselves um, because the outlook has a lot of uncertainty to it. Thanks, Paul. That's been a great wrap-up of the Australian economy and, and in particular the property sector. Can we continue that thread as we now turn to our third segment, What's Invisible? In this segment, we concentrate on the big factors behind the scenes which are shaping economic futures, but aren't obviously being talked about in the press. We've been focused on China our last few episodes because we know that over one third of Australian exports go to that single country, with 65% of that being one product, iron ore. So Australia has an undiscussed over-reliance on China for our economic prosperity. Property has grown to become a very important sector in the Chinese economy. So, Paul, let's discuss it. How important is the Chinese property sector to this Chinese economy? Yeah, that's right, Dom. Um, We can certainly look at the Chinese economic miracle as a changing one. Look back over 60 years ago, the Chinese economy was largely a rural one Mm -hmm. uh, with large demographics uh, spread all around the nation. Uh, It became a more concentrated story as manufacturing took over and we've all known and benefited from the manufacturing revolution that has occurred in China or it's become the world's uh, warehouse and um, production department. Yeah. Uh, we've all seen you know, goods made from China that were a long time ago not so good and now they're pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and we certainly all benefit from lower prices as the population of China concentrated into manufacturing areas and started making all of our stuff. Yeah, that's right. But that's changed in the last couple of decades. Think back uh, as far as 2000, the property sector in China represented only 10% of its economy. Okay. Uh, but right now that's grown to be over 30% of its economy. Wow. <laughs> wow, that's huge. What led to that change? So it, it started off with, uh, you know, a, a freedom of ownership and a distribution of ownership in the Chinese economy. Obviously, the Chinese Communist Party controlled 
a lot of the land and ownership and mm-hmm. wanted to focus where manufacturers and manufacturers would operate and then where cities would be. So there was a big control over property and property rights for a long time. Mm-hmm. That started to break up as um, people were encouraged to set up businesses and own factories and establish um, particularly uh, economic zones of uh, industrial activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that then led to uh, the wave that we've seen all around the world of houses and units and developers and uh, lots of people doing pretty well out of building residential real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really rapidly occurred in the Chinese economy and the wealth factor has now spread throughout the Chinese economy and Australians have always had a love affair with uh, owning property and that's now a factor in Chinese general population as well, mm-hmm. um, which has become a problem. And so uh, the Chinese government responded to this issue by introducing a three red line policy in 2020. They understood the overheating that was occurring in the Chinese property sector, mm-hmm. and they intentionally introduced three speed limits on the Chinese property sector. They were forcing developers to hold extra liquidity in their balance sheet. They put limits on the amount of debt that Chinese developers could take on, and they put on uh, limits on the types of liabilities that Chinese developers could take on as well. So that was their three red line policy to try and moderate the amount of property focused growth that was occurring in the Chinese economy. And of course, from an Australian perspective, when we send out so much iron ore and minerals and other building materials to the Chinese economy, we have benefited from that. Mm-hmm. And that slowdown has a direct impact on us. I'd say the Chinese government's been pretty good with uh, economic policy to date. Uh, so how did they go with these three red lines? Well, not so good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, it was certainly intended to be a, a, a slowdown mm-hmm. uh, or to create a slowdown in the Chinese property sector, but it really caused a hard crunch. So, mm. since that's occurred, new housing starts are down 70%, 7-0. Ooh. Yeah, new dwelling starts are down 50%. Wow. And uh, real estate prices have dropped by a third across China. Wow, that's quite dramatic. And yeah. I guess that would have pretty dramatic ramifications for us also in Australia. Yeah, that's right. And so what we know is that property is now central to household balance sheets in China. Mm-hmm. The wealth effect is real in Chinese homes. Uh, the rate of home ownership is very high. And so there's been a desire by the Chinese government to pivot from being an export-orientated country where they would make things and mm-hmm. the rest of the world would buy things to create their surpluses to try and stabilise that by creating, you know, a, a level of wealth in the domestic economy which was going to create retail sales domestically, both for the things that China was trying to import as well as the things that it was making. Okay. So that its manufacturers had two types of customers, a domestic internal economy and exported uh, external customers as well to try and underpin the that, that economy. And this property impact, this crushing of, you know, domestic balance sheets has had the opposite impact on that. Households in China are not feeling wealthy, and so that desire to try and lift internal retail sales in China uh, isn't working. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen is that uh, retail sales in China have gone backwards, and then they're they're now back to 2019 levels. Uh, whilst at the same time, of course, growth has been quite anemic around the rest of the world, and so export countries also aren't buying as much out of China. So they're getting hit both ways. Their external customers aren't buying as much, mm-hmm. and the hope that they had that their internal customers, they're Chinese living in China would be buying goods from local manufacturers is also falling away as they're now feeling poorer for not having as much wealth from their private property holdings. Right. That doesn't sound too good of a story (laughs) and probably not something that they're happy about. No, it's certainly not at the Chinese um, political level, if you like. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, it's a pretty well-controlled 
nation, um, <laughs> but no one likes to have their people unhappy and that you know is a potential risk uh, for political instability. And so the response that we've seen from the Chinese government since 2000 is to be running uh, budget deficits. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no change there. Um, it's continuing to run budget deficits and they've averaged 2% of GDP and we're now expecting that to be close to 4% of GDP for this 2023 year and that's big. That's a, yeah, huge actually. In conjunction with that, we've also seen uh, the PBOC drop official interest rates in China. Wait, what's the PBOC? The PBOC is, sorry, the People's Bank of China. That's China's central bank, their equivalent of our RBA. Makes sense. Um, Yeah, so they, like the uh, RBA here, use um, a standard interest rate to try and influence the Chinese economy. Mm -hmm. They reduced that by 10 basis points in June and 15 basis points in August. Uh, So that's now sitting at 2.5%. So they haven't changed it much, and that's interesting. Uh, You could see that um, if you were concerned about where the Chinese economy was heading and wanted to stimulate it, you might want to add more stimulus to the economy, um, but that's been hard to do. And so the just like the RBA here, it's getting conflicting readings from things. Mm-hmm. Um, the Chinese central bank is not finding it any easier. Uh, so in response, they have also tried to steer away from central bank interest rate controls to lots of targeted little policies. There's now constant sort of small impact policies all around China, economic zones, you know, small tax relief, things like extra deductions, extra stimulus, but lots and lots of small relief mm-hmm. spread all around the country. Um, but to be honest, they don't add up to much overall. Most of them are headline grabbing rather than being particularly material from an economic point of view. Right. And I think I've heard that the one reason why the PBOC can't really reduce interest rates much further is because actually local governments are already so heavily indebted they don't want to encourage them to go out and get more debt. Is that right? That's exactly right. And so they're stuck in a, in a quandary. The overall level of debt in the Chinese economy from a government point of view is not sitting at the federal level. It is sitting at the local government level. Mm-hmm. And this property bubble that has occurred has been very much stimulated by local government regions who have encouraged local um, developers to go and build a lot of buildings many of which, as we've seen, have not been sold or used. Mm-hmm. So back to the impact uh, to the Australian economy. Um, if we think about Australia's exports, you know, one-third of them going to China and you know, over, about two-thirds of that being in one particular building material, that's really been supported by a building boom, Yeah, by that growth from 10% to 30% in the Chinese economy. And that building boom is no longer occurring. That building boom is now faltering, mm-hmm. and so that should be a warning for the Australian economy to start thinking about where does our growth come from next. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly not a headline that's talked about in this country a lot. We've got this segment, the invisible to raise factors like this, mm-hmm. but it's certainly true that we concentrate a lot on things like the interest rate that the RBA sets, which is largely an internal control, and we talk about you know the property cycles within Australia. Um, but it's critically important to understand where our biggest sources of government revenue come from, and that is linked to the property market in China, which is now clearly overbuilt and not going up. So where to from here? Great question. (laughs) Pretty general, but (laughs) yeah. Forecasting again, here we go. (laughs) Let's do it. So uh, the way we can think about some of these things is there's, again, some linear conclusions we can make. Mm -hmm. We export a lot to them. Uh, their economy is not going well, 
therefore bad for us. Yeah. Um, that is a bit linear in thinking. That's not really the way these things play out. Uh, it is true that governments step in, mm-hmm. you know, and what uh, everyone, when they're predicting, tries to do is predict what multiple governments will do in response to multiple factors and then it's a bit chicken and egg because, and circular, you know, a response from China is going to produce a response from Australia or is going to produce a response from the rest of the world. Yeah. So what, what is likely to happen is a slow sideways. Mm. And so unlike a quick, you know, um, unbundling of the, the, the property buildup that's occurred in China, we're likely to see, you know, a Chinese government at the federal level, which is well-funded and does have a lot of reserves, is likely to prop up things and try and let the economy catch up. Mm. Now, the only way that will uh, work long-term is if global demand picks up. That's a bit of a patience game. Mm-hmm. You know, China wants to see its property sector not go backwards, but it's going to cost money to keep it stable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can do that as it spends money internally on small stimulus measures and certainly is able to do so because uh, its banking system is centrally owned. Yeah. Um, so unlike other Western economies where you know, bad banks get cleaned out, the banks in China just sort of sit there and are supported and go sideways for a long time, which can lead to an economy going sideways for a long time. Uh, and, you know, it can try and wait for this global demand to pick up. It can also continue through this pretend trade war that's occurring with the US. Yeah. We've talked about that before. We say that's a pretend trade war. There's certainly a lot of chest beating on both sides of that US-China relationship around uh, trade and who makes what and whether they should and what prices they should set for things, all that's really doing is is sending uh, manufacturing to adjacent countries to China. The US is still outsourcing most of its manufacturing. It's just trying to find uh, what's called the China plus one strategy. So large corporates in the US are being encouraged to continue with their China relationships and China manufacturing to keep inflation low in the US, which is what the US Fed wants. Yeah. But at the same time, try and get a China plus one, China plus somewhere else to also be a supply source. So there's a backup. Mm -hmm. Um, But as we've analyzed in those um, supply chains, those plus one countries are typically places that are just getting it from China. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. It's sort of China plus indirectly China is kind of how it's going. Uh, And that's certainly the case in most European manufacturing, you know, US corporates setting up relationships with European um, manufacturers mm-hmm. are basically buying Chinese goods, you know, indirectly through European um, corporates. And look, that's all okay. Um, that just takes time for uh, all of those things to turn around while central banks uh, in the West have raised interest rates trying to control inflation, as we've done here in Australia, mm-hmm. uh, and keep those economies moving forward while everyone just plays the shell game of, of catch-up. So the short version of, the, of that is that, you know, history – May not repeat, but it certainly rhymes. <laughs> I like that. And, you know, we're likely to see uh, in the, the global economy a sideways trend while all federal uh, central banks are trying to control or use interest rate levers to keep their economies on hold until they can catch up to some level of growth again. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is a real um, interesting point to, to become aware of is that Australia is not alone in this reliance that we have on China. Mm-hmm. If you're going to think of China in a particularly unique set of risk zone territories, it's it's sort of created a lot of growth through accelerating its infrastructure and property sector growth quickly, and it could do that because it was centrally controlled. It sort of brought forward the building that it might have done over 60 years and completed that in 30 years. Yeah. So there are some suppliers to China which are most exposed to that. And uh, what we can see if we look around the world is that uh, there's, a, there's an index which shows 
how much of each country's exports go to particular countries and in particular how much of each country's exports go to China. And there's a measure. There's a small group of countries that have over 30% okay. of their exports go to China. Australia leads the pack, unfortunately, <laughs> so we have the most reliant. It's other countries like New Zealand, mm -hmm. Laos, Myanmar, Japan, South Korea, Brazil, Chile, and Angola. Mm -hmm. So these countries all have uh, both uh, an industrial mining sector at their core, and that's what uh, all these, these countries have in common. So if you look around the world and, and if you are thinking about your circumstances at the moment um, as a listener, you'd want to be live to what are your risks. And, you know, if you're reliant on the Australian economy, then you'd be want to want to be live to what's happening in the Chinese property sector to know that they're really not going to take as much of our exports, you know, for the next few years. Mm -hmm. But also if you're doing trade with any of those other countries, you're at particularly high risk because those countries are now subject to the same risk. And so, if all of your customers, for example, were in that group of countries, you'd want to be diversifying pretty quick. You've got a problem. <laughs> got it. So, what can we take away from all of that, Paul? Well, we started off by talking about property in China. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly, it's a sector which is directly linked to our thesis here, that there is a reliance by Australia on the Chinese economy because we export so much iron ore there. Yeah. And it's a problem sector. But there are some bright spots on the horizon for the Chinese economy. Uh, for example, although it won't sound good, there is very high youth unemployment in China. I wouldn't say that's positive usually, but I can't wait to hear what you say next. No, it's not. But uh, if we understand the Chinese future to be at high risk because of demographic challenges, there's certainly an aging population in China as it tries to create internal retail consumers to mm -hmm. help its way out of its growth malaise at the moment. It's going to need to turn to young people to do that, and it has them. Mm -hmm. And so there are actually three other factors that are quite positive for the Chinese economy. So I reckon we've probably given our listeners enough today, uh, but I reckon in our next segment we should jump into some of those countervailing measures which are positive for the Chinese economy are going to help support what is the most risky element in that sector at the moment, which is property. Well, that sounds great, Paul. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Invisible Hand. If you liked what you heard, please rate our show. And if you have any questions or ideas for what's being discussed, please feel free to reach out to us. Bye.